There was a gentleman that got up on an early rainy Sunday morning just like this. He rolled over in bed and said to his wife, I don't want to go to church today. I stayed up late watching football last night. And she said, you have to go. And he said, I don't want to go. I'm too sleepy and tired. And she says, you still have to go. And he said, those folks there don't like me. She said, it doesn't matter. You still have to go. And he said, why? And he said, she said, because you're the preacher. (laughs) All right, if you will. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. I want to read to you an interesting story where Jesus cast an evil spirit out of a young boy who had what apparently was epilepsy, but actually was a demon possession. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And here's the verse I want to focus on. He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer. And there are a lot of things in this passage that we could focus on. Seizures, convulsions, demons, prayer. There's all manner of things. Faith, but I'm not focusing on any of that today. And I know you'd probably like for me to, 
But I'm going to focus on this last phrase where he says, this kind comes out only by prayer. There was a demon-possessed boy. The demon caused him to have seizure-like activity. It often threw him into the fire. It often threw him into the water. The disciples could not cast out the demons, even though in the past, Jesus had given them authority to do just that, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. But it had been a temporary authority. Jesus, if you noticed, merely spoke a word and the demon came out with a loud shriek. Understand clearly that Jesus' authority over the demon world, over the demon realm, is absolute. Later in private, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, why couldn't we? Very good question. And I would submit to you very respectfully, brothers and sisters, that's a good question for you and me to ask ourselves. Why are we often faced with similar insurmountable issues in our families and in our own individual lives where we try our hardest with similar insurmountable issues and everything we do humanly possible and we fail? The operative word there is humanly possible. All of us have family and friends who deal with Issues like drugs or alcohol or sexual addictions or pornography or gambling. And we do everything that we know to do for them and we simply cannot overcome that issue. And we begin to understand why people refer to drug and alcohol addiction as the demon of alcohol or the demon of drug addiction. For example, two weeks ago in my office, One of my patients came in and she described a situation where her daughter had discovered her drug-addicted husband's drug paraphernalia. She threw it away, and when her drug-addicted husband found out, he went into such a rage that he attacked her daughter. She witnessed it, and she later told me in my office, she said, Dr. Jackson, I think a demon got in him. He was so enraged the demon of drug addiction, the demon of alcohol. But I'll tell you, in in the same way as when people become addicted to illicit sex, they do things because of their sexual addictions that they would never do ordinarily, even though they know it's destructive of their reputation, destructive of their uh, reputation and their, their relationships, and they pursue that illicit sexual relationship like an ox to the slaughter. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And no matter how much you and I may debate with them or argue with them or counsel with them, they turn a deaf ear because of their addiction to their illicit sexual relationships. Sometimes you and I want to scream in frustration or anger because you cannot make a right decision for them. And we, just like the disciples, we say, why can't we help them? Why are we so powerless? And just like Jesus answered the disciples, the answer is this kind comes out only by prayer. 
What kind of prayer? Well, I'm going to come to that in a minute. Now, I'm going to ask several questions today and try to answer those questions. And I'm going to tell you, these are questions that I asked myself as I was reading this passage of Scripture. And I very quickly scribbled down a number of questions that came to my mind. Here's the first one. What was the qualitative difference between Jesus and these disciples at this juncture in their relationship with Jesus Christ? Number one, he was God walking around in a physical body. These disciples were men, mere men, walking around in a physical body. Now think about this. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was God in a fleshly body. He was God incarnate. The scripture says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, can you wrap your mind around that? That the eternal, immortal, everlasting, never dying God, the eternal creator God, compressed himself into a six foot tall, 180 pound physical body named Jesus of Nazareth. No wonder the disciples were perplexed and the Pharisees were indignant when Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the father. The disciples were confused and the Pharisees were thrown over the edge. It is only by the Spirit of God that you or I or anyone else can comprehend or receive that truth. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? What does Peter say? He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responded. He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, but only my Father who is in heaven. You see, Peter only understood that because the Father in heaven, the Spirit, had revealed that to him. And trust me, brothers and sisters, you and I only understand that because the Spirit of God illumines our minds. Nobody understands it, receives it, or believes it except by the activity of the Holy Spirit in their lives, just like in Simon Peter's life. It is a mystery that theologians have debated for centuries. Nevertheless, it is a fundamental of the faith that you and I accept by childlike faith because the Holy Spirit is illuminating our minds. Jesus Christ was God walking around in a physical body. The disciples were mere men walking around in a physical body. And at this point in their lives, they did not possess the life of God that Jesus possessed. But ah, that was soon to change at Pentecost. Stay tuned. Next thing I want you to see is this. Jesus was a man committed to prayer. The disciples were men who poorly understood prayer. Now in Mark chapter 1 verse 35 Jesus had been teaching and healing late into the night. And then in verse 35, it says that rising a great while before day, Jesus departed into a solitary place and there prayed. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I get into a solitary place, I tend to fall asleep. It's a gift. <clears throat> if I get five minutes alone with nobody around, I'm just gone. You should watch me on Wednesday night in the choir loft. As soon as John just starts talking and we quit singing, I'm gone. It's a gift from God. I learned it when I was a medical resident and I was sleep deprived for six continuous years. I could lay on the floor in the emergency room and there'd be hubbub all around and I'd be asleep. So you see, Jesus, listen, in the book of Luke, I went through the book of Luke one time. Now Luke was a historian and he was a biographer of the life of Jesus Christ. And 11 times in the book of Luke, it says this phrase, as was his custom, Jesus departed to the wilderness or to the garden. He went off somewhere alone to do what? To sleep? Nope. That's me. Maybe you. He departed to a solitary place and he prayed. Sometimes he prayed all night. When was the last time you did that? That's not you and me. That's Jesus. It was his custom. It was the habit of his life. Now, I'm going to ask you three questions that go along with this. Well, before I, say, before I ask the questions, let me make another comment. He was a man accustomed to prayer. His disciples were men who were intrigued by his prayer life, so much so that they asked him to teach them to pray, which led him to teach them the model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer. So here are the three questions. If Jesus was the Lord of the heavens and the earth who enjoyed constant unbroken fellowship with his heavenly father, how much more do you and I who are mortal sinful people do we need to spend time with our heavenly father to have our spiritual batteries recharged? Do I need to ask you that again? If Jesus who was the Lord of the heavens and the earth, who enjoyed perfect, unbroken fellowship with his heavenly Father. How much more do you and I, who are mortal and sinful, need to spend time with our heavenly Father? Yeah, we do, don't we? Sure we do. So the next question I want to ask you is this. What's your custom? When your biographer writes the book of your life, what are the customs that he's going to describe about you? What are the things about your life that he's going to write about in your biography? And the question I want to know is, is extended prayer time going to be one of the items that he puts in the book of your life? That hurts, doesn't it? And then the third thing I'm going to ask you is this. After you're dead and gone, and they lower you into the grave, and everybody gathers at your house to eat ham biscuits and tater salad. That's what they do, isn't it? Yeah. And they all gather around, your family and the grandkids and the kids, and they all start talking about you. Right? That's how things go. I know. What are they going to say about you? See, the reason I ask that is because when I was in college, my, after my second year of college, one of my favorite Sunday school teachers went to be with Jesus. And I went to his house along with the family, and they were all sitting around, his wife and his kids and his grandkids and a few other assorted folks from the church. And they were doing what? Well, they were eating ham, biscuits, and tater salad. 
And they started talking about my Sunday school teacher. And they talked about his bird dogs and how much he loved to quail hunt. And they talked about his favorite college team. And, oh, God, he was a Gamecock fan. I had to extend a little grace to him on that. And they talked about his children and his grandchildren and all this. And, and you know, he'd been a deacon forever and a Sunday school teacher forever. And he'd had a big impact on my spiritual growth and development. And, but nobody ever said anything about that. So finally, I piped up and said, you know, he really was a good Sunday school teacher. And he had a big, big impact on my life. And it's like you sprayed cold water on the whole crowd. And they got real quiet and they looked at their shoes and didn't say nothing for a little while. And it was just a real awkward silence. And then they went back to talking about his bird dogs. And I just thought, what does that say about them? What does that say about him? I just didn't know. So I left his house. I went straight home to my house, went to my bedroom, got out a pencil and paper. And I said, Lord, God almighty, do not let that happen to me when I am dead and gone. And I started writing some things down. And I determined in my heart right then as a 20-year-old college boy that there were some things that I wanted people to say about me when I'm dead and gone. And one of them I wrote down, I said, Lord, when I'm gone, I want people to say that Robert Jackson knew how to pray and that his life was characterized by prayer and by worship. Now, now mind you, I was 20 years old at the time. And I really did not know how to pray at that time, nor did I know how to worship. I was 30 years old before I really knew how to worship God. In fact, I didn't know how to worship God until I got in cahoots with a bunch of pro-life charismatics over in Greenville. I'm serious about that. And they taught me how to worship God for real. But I was 20 years old at the time, and I wrote it down. And I began to pray that that would be true in my life. I also wrote down, I said, Lord, when I'm dead and gone, I want people to be able to say that I knew the Bible and knew how to teach the Bible. At 20 years old, that was not true about me. The third thing I wrote down, I said, Lord, when I'm dead and gone, I want the church to be full on one side of my family my kids, my grandkids, and on the other side, I want it to be full of people that I have led to the Lord and men that I have discipled to full maturity in Christ. That's a lot for a 20-year-old kid, but that's what God put on my heart to write down on that piece of paper. And I have determined in my life ever since then to live my life in such a way that when I'm dead and gone, and everybody I know is sitting in my kitchen eating ham biscuits and tater salad, that somebody's going to say those kind of things about me. And I put it in my will so that if my kids don't say something like that, that they get writ out of the will. All right. Now, why, why in the world would you want something like that? Just so people to say nice spiritual things about you? No, 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 no. It's because, brothers and sisters, if you and I are obedient Christians, that's automatic. When we're obedient Christians, stuff like that happens automatically in your life. It's not because you have to write it into the will. Now keep moving. Everything changed at Pentecost. We all understand that. They were gathered in an upper room, 120 of them, 
doing what? Well, they were doing what Jesus modeled. They were praying. And suddenly there was a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire descended on them. And 120 of the disciples immediately became what? Little Christ. You see, that's what the original meaning of the word Christian was, little Christ. And they became God walking around in human bodies. And don't misunderstand me, they didn't become God like Jesus was God in the flesh. Because Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he said, we have this treasure in what? Jars of clay, earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. That the surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, they became temples of the Holy Spirit. And Paul told the Corinthians with a note of incredulity in his voice, he said, What? Do you not know that you're temples of the Holy Ghost, whom you have from God, and you are not yourselves? For you've been bought with a price. And what was the price? Well, it was the blood of Jesus. He said, Therefore glorify God in your minds and in your bodies. And you see, brothers and sisters, these disciples became temples of the Holy Spirit who came to live within them. And they were suddenly transformed. They were born again into this kingdom of God that Jesus had been preaching about for three years. Fear was replaced with boldness. The darkness of confusion was replaced with illumination and understanding. Remorse and regret was replaced with determination to obey. The closed doors and hiding were replaced with open mouths and loud proclamation. And Peter preached that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And what was the result? Well, 3,000 people were saved that day and baptized. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ had a great initiation. And then all of the book of Acts which is more properly known as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, records conversions, healings, casting out demons, miraculous escapes, missionary journeys, and the planning of churches. All of that because these fearful disciples who had been in hiding and were weak and powerless were suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. They became God walking around in earthen vessels. And more than that, they became people of powerful prayer. In Acts 2.42, it says that they continued in the disciples' teaching and in prayer. And then in Acts 4.21, after the religious leaders threatened them and told them they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus anymore, they gathered together and they prayed and the Bible says that after they prayed, the building in which they were gathered began to shake. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they left that place and they began to preach boldly in the name of Jesus. And it became evident that the new characteristic of these spirit-controlled Christians was powerful praying and bold witnessing. And all throughout the book of Acts, that was the two characteristics of these spirit-controlled Christians, powerful praying and bold witnessing. Now, let's fast forward to today. You didn't think I was going to get to us, did you? 
Well, I'm there now. What's the difference between us and the first century disciples? Well, we are temples of the Holy Spirit just like them. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters. Got a few more minutes. The same Holy Spirit that was in those disciples, the same Spirit of God that hovered over the darkness at creation that was in those disciples is in you and me. The same Spirit of God that separated the light from the darkness lives in you and me. The same Spirit of God who took the hammer of His omnipotence and struck the anvil of His great power and then catched, caught the, the, the sparks that flew therefrom in His fingertips and flung them into the heavens bedecking them with stars and said, oh, that's good. And nobody said a word because there was nobody there to say anything. That same great creative power, brothers and sisters, lives in you and me. The same power that spoke the law into the heart of Moses on Mount Sinai lives in you and me. The same power that sent all ten plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt land and set God's people free lives in you and me. The same power that split the sea, the Red Sea, and let God's people go free through that sea lives in you and me. The same power that came down on Mount Carmel when Elijah prayed and burned up his sacrifice and routed the prophets of Baal, I'm telling you, that same power lives in you and me. The same power that shut the mouth of the lion and let Daniel come out of that cave free sets you and me free and lives in you and me. The same power that gave Daniel and Ezekiel the prophetic message that tells us about the future of the world lives in you and me. The same power that set told John the Revelator about the future of the world and the new Jerusalem and the captivity of Satan for a thousand years and the holy city lives in you and me. Brothers and sisters, we are not weak and powerless. Who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes Jesus is the Son of God and that power lives in you and me. And walk in that righteousness. Walk in that power. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit just like them. And we know how to pray just like they did. And my question to you and me is this. Are there really classes of super Christians or can we all be spirit-controlled Christians that speak boldly the truth of the gospel? Well, let's answer that question. And I want to start with a sports illustration. I'm sure all of you know who LeBron James is, the king in basketball. Now, he's an amazing basketball player. He is gifted physically. He's six foot eight or nine and weighs 270 pounds. He jumps like a gazelle. And now, now let me tell you this, not all men that size can perform physically like LeBron James. I have patients who are six foot nine, 270 pounds. They can jump as high as they can jump and you can't jerk a sheet of newspaper out from under them. 
LeBron James has disciplined himself since an early age to dribble, to shoot, and to run to maintain exceptional skills. No matter how much I run, dribble, or shoot, I cannot perform physically at any level. I am not, in fact, I am handicapped physically when it comes to sports of any kind. What's the difference between super athletes and average athletes? Well, the answer is two things. One is giftedness and the other is discipline. Understand clearly that there are some gifted athletes who never achieve stardom. Why? Because they do not apply the same kind of discipline that LeBron James has applied ever since he was a child. And their family and friends look on and they say, so sad. What a shame. He could be a star and we could enjoy his wealth. But because he doesn't apply discipline, his giftedness does him and them no good. Now I would submit to you that we have the potential for spiritual greatness in the kingdom of God because God has placed within us this deposit of the Holy Spirit, this earnest of our redemption. He has put it in jars of clay, earthen vessels. We have the potential, but what must we add to it? Well, we must add discipline. The Christian life requires certain disciplines, such as prayer, Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization, Christian fellowship, and witnessing. These are the fundamentals of the faith. So what's the difference between an average, frustrated, carnal Christian and a spirit-controlled, fruit-bearing Christian? One who's spirit-controlled and speaks boldly for Christ and prays powerfully. Well, it boils down to one thing, guys and gals. It's our commitment to Christian disciplines. This is the X, fast, uh, X factor. What if we do not practice the Christian disciplines? Well, I will say to you that the angels in heaven will cover their face and they will say, oh, it's such a shame. It's so sad. He or she could have been so great in the kingdom of God when we do not practice the Christian disciplines. Now, how many of you ever been to the hospital, say in the ICU waiting room, and you're waiting with some of your friends to go and visit somebody in the ICU, and all of a sudden a guy in a coat and tie comes in, and you look and you say, that's either a preacher or a doctor. Don't you, isn't that right? So you start looking to see if he's got a stethoscope curled up in his pocket. Because if he's got a stethoscope, it's a dead giveaway. It's a doctor. But if there's no stethoscope, you start thinking, well, it could be a preacher. Now, I'll tell you a secret. Preachers have this little atmosphere about them, don't they? Do your head like this. They do. They, they just have this little aura, this little atmosphere about them. And when they walk in, preachers just have kind of an authority. You know, they shake everybody's hand, they give everybody a hug, they seem to know everybody's name, and, and they just have this little aura about them, and your spirit can discern, even before they say a word, that's a preacher. You ever been able to do that? Do your head like this. Yeah, you can. 
It's just, now, now, why is that? What, what is it about pastors that gives them that, that, I call it the aroma of Christ. That's a biblical term. It's the aroma of Christ. You want to know why? Because pastors have been practicing the disciplines of the Christian life for years, faithfully. They, they have the Spirit of God. They've been practicing the disciplines of the Christian life. The Spirit plus the disciplines creates the aroma of Christ. Now, that's not just the purview of pastors. You and I, if we do the same thing, we also have the aroma of Christ and fruitful ministry. Now, I'll show you what I mean. I was in the airport going to India. My wife was with me. Finney was with me. Now, Finney, Finney's got that preacher voice. Y'all know, y'all know what I mean by that? So whenever you're with Finney, it's a dead giveaway. When he opens his mouth, everybody says, preacher. Okay? Now, Finney was not in line with me. He was about three lines over. So I'm standing in line. I get to the checkout. I'm in a blue jean and a plaid shirt, not a coat and tie. So I get up to the line, and the lady looks at me. She says, I hadn't said a word. You're a preacher, aren't you? And I looked down at myself. I looked over at Finney, three lines over, and I said, Ma'am, why would you say that? And this is her exact words. She said, you just have this aura about you. Now, where did that come from? I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God sometimes creates that aroma of Christ around you and around me when we practice the disciplines of the Christian life, and sometimes even lost people can pick it up. I asked her, I said, ma'am, are you a believer? She said, no. I said, where are you from? She said, Brazil. And I said, well, do you go to church around here? She said, no. And I, with 20 people in line behind me, I was able to share the gospel with her, and I was able to steer her to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, which happened to be in her neighborhood, And I mean, it was just a God thing. But where does that come from? Listen, I was in line at Walmart here in my camouflage, had a a bag of deer corn on my shoulder, and a lady looked at me one day and she said, you're a preacher, aren't you? (laughs) I said, man, what makes you say that? She said, I don't know. I just just felt like you had to be a preacher. And I said, ma'am, I'm a doctor, but I, I do a little bit of preaching on the side. She said, I knew it. Where does that come from, brothers and sisters? I'm just telling you that when you are a spirit-controlled Christian and you abide in the Word and abide in prayer, that God creates the aroma of Christ in your life and it gives you opportunities for powerful praying and bold witnessing. You believe me. I tell you, I D-double dog you. Dog dare you to, to, to abide in the word and abide in prayer, and God will give you the opportunities to share the gospel. Now, let me ask you this question. What does it take to be a spirit-controlled Christian with the aroma of Christ? You got your little papers I gave you? Hold them up. Let me see them. Come on. I see that hand. There you go. There you go. All right. Now, first of all, it takes confession of all known sin. We're running out of time. We've got to go fast. Y'all got to listen faster. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. The Spirit of God does not cohabit with sin. So we have to be 
clean vessels. Number two, we yield control of every area of our lives to Christ. And number three, we trust the Holy Spirit to rule in our lives and to make you like Jesus. Now listen, this is not a magic formula. As a teacher, I try to make things as simple as I can, but I challenge you to practice this every day in your life. The most important thing is that you and I submit all of our lives to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important attitude of all. But if you will take these three steps and you pray them in your lives every day, and you see the prayer at the bottom, on the, back, on the bottom of it, I challenge you to pray that prayer in your life. I pray that every day or something similar to that. So that I make sure that the Spirit of God who lives in me is ruling and controlling my life. So that I can be a Spirit-controlled Christian. Now, there was, a little, there was a deacon who was praying one Sunday night at the end of a service. And he said, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. And his granddaughter piped up in a high squeaky voice. She said, Lord, don't do it. He leaks. <laughs> well, the truth is all of us leak. And what keeps us from being spirit-controlled Christians? Well, there's three things. One is unconfessed sin. The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We have to keep short accounts with God. Every time the Spirit of God convicts you and me of sin, we need to deal with it. Because again, the Spirit will not cohabit with sin in our lives. The other thing is fear. I think so many times we're afraid to let God control our lives. We're all convinced that if we give him control of our lives, he's going to send us to Africa as missionaries, make us live in a grass hut and eat bugs for the rest of our lives. We're just afraid. But yet the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. You see, brothers and sisters, God loves you and me with a perfect love. And he has a perfect plan for all of our lives. Do not be afraid to submit yourself completely to the God of love. And the other thing is... It's just ignorance. I think sometimes people just are totally unaware of this whole concept of the spirit-controlled life. I want to mention my new book. I got some copies in the, in the lobby back there. Chapter 18 talks more fully and more completely about this whole issue of the spirit-controlled life. The book is entitled, The Family Doctor Speaks, The Truth About Seed Planting, Equipping Believers for Evangelism. It's been selling very well. It's been out about eight weeks, and I invite you to take a look at it. Now, suppose you walk in the Spirit every day like Peter and Paul. What do you lack to become a Spirit-controlled Christian? Nothing more than practicing the disciplines of the Christian life over time. You see the formula there? Go to the next slide, please, sir. There you go. Holy Spirit plus obedience plus time equals the aroma of Christ and a fruitful ministry. There you have it. There you have it. Brothers and sisters, we have our invitation time now, and I want to invite you to consider praying the prayer that I've put there for you. Go back to our land, our starting off place. I want to land where we started. There are no shortcuts to the spirit-controlled life. There's no cramming. It all takes time and every day shooting hundreds of free throws, hundreds of three-pointers, and running suicides until you puke. Because you see, that's what makes a champion. That's what produces the aroma of Christ in you and me. You remember the demon-possessed boy that we started off with? You remember your family member that had the demon of alcohol or drugs or pornography 
or illicit sex, and it was destroying their lives and their families. But don't think I taught this lesson just so you can minister to them. I taught this lesson so you and I would have authority over the besetting sins in your life and mine. The bitterness, the unforgiveness, gossip, slander, lying, lust. You know what your issue is. I don't know. But you see, the Spirit of God in us gives us authority over these things in your life and mine, as well as the ability to persevere and powerful prayer over our family members as well. And I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, to every day practice the disciplines, the abiding in the Word, abiding in prayer, and every day submitting yourselves to the authority of Holy Spirit who lives in your life so that you can have a bold witness and a powerful prayer life, just like these first century disciples. That's available to you and me just like it was to them. We are not qualitatively different from them. We are the same. Let's pray together.